Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock, and from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Long years ago, we made a trip with destiny. On August 14, 1947, on the eve of India's long-awaited independence from the British Empire, Jawaharlal Nehru spoke to an assembly gathered in Delhi to frame the country's new constitution. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge, not wholly or in full measure, but very substantially. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. But that freedom came with a price. The former colony was being split apart in the process, partitioned into India and Pakistan over irreconcilable differences of religion and culture that were long stoked under British rule. At that very moment, Nehru's mentor, Mahatma Gandhi, was in Kolkata trying to subdue a year of bloody rioting between Hindus and Muslims. And across the subcontinent, millions lived in abject poverty the outcome of two centuries of brutal colonialism. Before the birth of freedom, we have endured all the pains of labor, and our hearts are heavy with the memory of this sorrow. Some of those pains continue even now. Nevertheless, the past is over, and it is the future that beckons to us now. The larger of the two new nations, India, would remain a multicultural, multilingual country and enter the world stage with Nehru as its first prime minister. At the dawn of history, India started on her unending quest, and trackless centuries are filled with her striving and the grandeur of her successes and her failures. Through good and ill fortune alike, she has never lost sight of that quest or forgotten the ideals which gave her strength. The achievement we celebrate today is but a step and opening of opportunity to the greater triumphs and achievements that await us. Are we brave enough and wise enough to grasp this opportunity and accept the challenge of the future? Always a realist, Nehru accepted the fate of partition and pleaded with his fellow statesmen and all Indians to strive for harmony and equal opportunity for a land where democracy would work for everyone. This is no time for pity and destructive criticism, no time for ill will or blaming others. We have to build the noble mansion of free India where all her children may dwell. Ultimately, his view is that he's committed to electoral democracy and to a certain kind of paternalism, which he sees as necessary to help people grow into citizenship, something that they hadn't necessarily been used to before. This is Hunter College historian Manu Bhagavan. The vision of India is of a modern state that is meant to focus on poverty alleviation, justice, and equity overall. My co-host, Siva Vadinathan, caught up recently with Bhagavan, an old friend of his, to talk about Indian history, to put into context the country's current crises, including the threat of authoritarian rule, the surge of Hindu nationalism, and the unbelievable toll that the COVID pandemic has taken on this most populous democracy in the world. So, Siva, can you share the highlights of your conversation with Manu? 
Hey, Will. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that Manu emphasized was just how aspirational India's constitution was when it was first adopted. You know, he reminded me what a complex process that negotiation and adoption really was. I mean, practically, ideologically, in every way. Here's a bit of that back and forth. The Constituent Assembly was an incredibly diverse body. They really debated very thoroughly, and they looked to many other places, uh, Japan as an example, and the United States in particular. The chair of the drafting committee, who's often called the father of the Indian constitution, was Dr. B.R. Baba Saheb Ambedkar. And Ambedkar was particularly concerned with fraternity, equality, and liberty and embedding those concepts in the Indian constitution. Obviously, these things are a, a famous reference to the French Revolution and French conceptions. Um, Ambedkar specifically denied that he was drawing from that as a point of origin. He thought of these same concepts as having an indigenous basis, and that he was drawing from, in his specific case, like a Buddhist heritage that gave these contemporary words a certain kind of meaning. That doesn't mean that he then therefore completely rejected Western notions either. Um, it's that this was drawing together in an almost ecumenical fashion, the best of different ideas without necessarily rejecting things because of their point of origin. So that's, in a nutshell, the foundational ideas that go into the Constitution. Well, you know, I mean, the, the flag of India has the wheel of Ashoka. Ashoka was a, an ancient leader who adopted Buddhism and and tried to lift his kingdom beyond the the intercene battles among faiths, and and clearly the Indian constitution is written in an aspirational way that seems to wish that India could transcend sectarianism and create a whole new social vision in this country with so many divisions and deep traditions. You know, there's that old adage that a, a bee should not be able to fly, right? Its its body is too heavy for its wings. It shouldn't be able to fly. Well, can we think of India the same way? I mean, with more than 25 major languages, with deep historical fissures, with massive caste distinctions, inequality of wealth, you know, India should be the last place democracy works by all of that description, right? I mean, how come democracy works as well as it does in India? Um, I love this question, and it's something that the founders um, really contemplated. Nehru, in particular, saw India as a microcosm of the world at large. At the same time that India was becoming independent, the world was creating the new United Nations and was also discussing the idea of human rights. And India was very involved in both of these things, the foundation of the UN and the creation of human rights. And in fact, it was Nehru's sister who played a very critical role in what becomes one of the key precedents for the very premise of human rights, which is the ability of the international community to intervene in states uh, if they abuse rights. So when you ask about the incredible diversity and range of India, uh, Nehru saw the ability of this level of difference to congeal together and to function and to interact while acknowledging all of this difference and allowing it to function in its incredible diversity as emblematic of what could happen in the world. And so by making India work, he thought that that was a reflection of how the world could work. 
Those dreams are for India, but they are also for the world, for all the nations and peoples are too closely knit together today for any one of them to imagine that it can live apart. Peace has been said to be indivisible, so is freedom, so is prosperity now, and so also is disaster in this one world that can no longer be split into isolated fragments. For the people of India, whose representatives we are, we make appeal to join us with faith and confidence in this great adventure. Siva, that metaphor that you used about a bee sort of looking like it's not engineered to actually take flight is a very interesting one to think about India's problems, you know, so big and so complicated, so heavy. You wonder, can this really become a democracy? And I mean, think about it. Gandhi was assassinated not long after Nehru delivered that speech we just heard a clip from. And India has seen its share of political strife over the decades. And now Narendra Modi, the current prime minister, leads a party, the BJP, that is just determined to remake India essentially as a Hindu theocracy. That's right. You know, and, and it's even more complicated than that. Uh, you know, uh, the political movement from which Modi sprouted dates back to the 1920s. For a long time, there's been this marginal group of ideologues pushing a Hindu nationalist idea of India. And this, of course, worked directly against Nehru's idea and Gandhi's idea of a much more cosmopolitan vision for this new nation. And almost all along that time, India was dominated by Nehru's party, a single major secular party known as the Congress Party. Now, in 1975, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, who was Nehru's daughter, but of course, no relation to Mahatma Gandhi, suspended the constitution for almost two years in what was called the emergency. emergency declared by Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's government, at least 676 politicians had been arrested, including some of the country's best known opposition leaders. Others claim thousands had been jailed. The emergency ultimately brought her down. So it was like, it was a moment when people looked around and said, hey, look, the rule of law might actually work. Demands for her resignation grew based on her conviction for political corruption. And uh, a loose coalition of opponents did force her out of office and did rule India for a very short period of time. But Indira Gandhi retained a tremendous amount of power and some popularity. So she became prime minister again in 1980. Uh, she was ultimately assassinated in 1984 and her son took over the party and therefore the country. And ever since then, her family, her sons, her daughters, her daughter-in-law have run the Congress party. It's become a one-family party in a lot of ways. It's become a tremendously corrupt party. So by the 1990s and the early part of this century, the Congress party was much, much weaker. And all of this opened the door for someone like Narendra Modi, someone who could claim the mantle of populism, someone who was speaking for the people. We must connect growth to the common man, Modi said, and make it all inclusive. Now, when he was chief minister, kind of like the governor of the state of Gujarat, Modi mobilized a loyal following with that very promise, Manu says, the promise of an alternative to what had basically become a dynasty of political dinosaurs. 
many people throughout India found this very convincing. They found it convincing because uh, over time in Gujarat, he focused on and put out the image of a person committed to development and that he was transforming the state of Gujarat and that he could do the same thing for India. He was a popular speaker. He appeared young and fit and strong. And most significantly, he claimed that he originally was a humble tea seller and that he arose from nothing to become what he was and therefore he represented the Indian dream. Anybody could be anything. So, Siva, he presents himself as change, as an alternative. All right, so how did that all play out? I mean, if I remember correctly, there were terrible riots that broke out in Gujarat in the early 2000s. You know, thousands of people were injured and hundreds killed, most of them Muslim. Some people called it a pogrom. You know, a lot of observers held Modi responsible. Didn't this firebrand nationalism rub Indians the wrong way? Yeah, it certainly rubbed a lot of Indians the wrong way, but it also excited and energized a lot of Indians. Indians who had been looking for something real, something passionate, something less technocratic, something closer to their daily lives. And of course, religion is close to many people's daily lives. You know, Modi always denied that he was to blame for the violence, and he always insisted that the BJP's platform amounted to a corrective to the pseudo-secularism that had supposedly been harming Hindus, had been rendering Hinduism marginal and riding on that rhetoric of victimization. Modi won a plurality in the national election of 2014, and he did so while paying some lip service to pluralism. Uh, All the while, Manu says, Modi was sounding dog whistles for the Hindu right. And then Modi was re-elected overwhelmingly in 2019. In terms of why people reacted positively to him, well, the Hindu population is about 80% of India. It is an overwhelming majority. So this kind of play to their sympathies is seen as a pathway to electoral success and it has proven to be so. Wait, a politician sounding dog whistles for the religious right? That sounds familiar. Yeah, you know, uh, Modi is nothing if not a savvy politician. I might argue he is the savviest politician in the world. His media machine is unparalleled. His use of social media is a model, and many other thugs around the world have tried to mimic his social media campaigns. Uh, You know, let's also remember that by the time he ran for this second term and won, the global context had changed. Uh, You know, in the United States, Donald Trump was president in many other parts of the world, like Brazil and Hungary and Turkey, all these places we've talked about on this program, the illiberal turn had arrived. And as Manu says, Modi felt right at home. After he won re-election in 2019, the mask really came off. That was when he said, we need to subscribe to a more muscular sense of self and purpose. We should be proud of who we are. And this is the transition to things that we've seen uh, elsewhere. Now, it wasn't just 2019, I want to be clear. He had been doing this all along and signaling it in sort of subtle ways from 2014 forward. Um, He just sort of became much, much, much more overt. And then he began to implement that more hardline vision.
was Manu Bhagavan, a professor of history at Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York. Manu is the author of The Peacemakers, India and the Quest for One World. We'll be right back with two journalists who have been wondering if India is even still a democracy. See, but Manu Bhagavan really reminded us how the intended project of post-colonial India, you know, this vision of a pluralistic and inclusive democratic society has become contorted in many ways over the last three quarters of a century. It seems like India's democracy, I mean, has totally fallen short of its founders' aspirations. Yeah, you know, the fallout of all of these power struggles has been really dire. Modi's administration has censored and jailed opponents. It's cracked down on journalists. It's adopted anti-Muslim immigration and naturalization policies. Uh, you know, it's launched social media mobs against critics, against journalists, against scholars. And earlier this year, Modi tried to sweep away protections for India's farmers in favor of big corporate interests. That set off massive protests. Now, of course, over the past two months, we've seen an incredible, tragic record growth in coronavirus infections and deaths in India. Wow, there's a lot to cover, and our next guests are going to bring us up to speed on all these current issues. Yeah, we have two very prolific journalists with us right now who have covered India extensively. They've written about the country's struggles with its democratic institutions, struggles with press freedoms, with the pandemic, and with the ongoing conflict over the disputed region of Kashmir. Vidya Krishnan is an investigative journalist who writes frequently for The Atlantic. She is currently a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, and she's the author of the forthcoming book, Phantom Plague, the untold story of how tuberculosis shaped our history. Vidya, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me. And we have Kapil Komiretti on the line as well. Kapil's reporting and critical essays have appeared in The Economist, The Guardian, the New York Times, and many other publications. And he's the author of Malevolent Republic, a short history of the new India. Kapil, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, Kapil, we just heard from Manu Bhagavan. Uh, he explained the roots of this extreme fascist-influenced Hindu nationalist movement. You've written that Modi has managed to create a cult of personality around himself. And I'm I'm fascinated by this transition where once he presented himself as a competent technocrat and now he's an autocratic strongman. Can you pick up where Manu left off and tell us how you think Modi pulled off this bait and switch? Well, this is very interesting because uh, Modi belongs to the BJP, which for all its ills is a fairly democratic party. And the evidence of that democratic spirit of that party is to be found in Modi's own ascent from the margins of Indian society to the apex of political power. Uh, and that what the prime minister has done is sought to present himself, to cement his status as the father of what his supporters call the new India. Until Modi's appearance on the scene, uh, Hindu nationalists really didn't have the kind of icons that secularists had. Secularists had Gandhi, they had uh, Nehru. Hindu nationalists didn't have any such figures. Uh, Hindu nationalism was a swamp filled with people who were worshipping Hitler in the 1930s. Modi appears on the scene and seeks to 
glamorize that ideology by placing himself as its mascot. And what he does is he spends a large amount of public money. He converts the BJP into a version of the Congress party where the leader is exalted and venerated. He reduces the cabinet to a sycophantic court. There are films made about his childhood. Ministers line up to say Modi is God's gift to India. And he's named a stadium, the world's largest cricket stadium, after himself. And he has subverted every single institution in India. I cannot think of a single institution. The press, the armed forces, the judiciary, the election commission, the Reserve Bank of India, everything has been subverted by this man. And is that true throughout India? Aren't there at least walls of resistance in Bengal and Kerala, maybe in Tamil Nadu? Or do you see Modi's cult of personality even breaking through regional and linguistic limits that we always assumed mattered in India? Yeah, those those were supposed to be the safeguards against, you know, one man cult. But what Modi has done in my own home state in southern India is he has broken through. There are young people who now revere him. Uh, he has succeeded in dismantling those safeguards. I don't deny the existence still of resistance against Modi, but they, they are residues of resistance. Uh, the prime minister remains the most powerful uh, leader in India at the moment. And obviously there are figures who, who resist him with great courage and fortitude, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he is enormously powerful and in a direct contest with them, he has the resources at his disposal to crush them if he so chooses to do. Mm. Vidya, I'd like to bring you into the conversation here. Alongside the erosion of democracy, the, the biggest story in India at the moment is the coronavirus pandemic, which you've been following very closely. There have been some 25 million cases of COVID in India and, and about 280,000 deaths. But what's really been shocking is that so many of these have been concentrated just in recent months, in, in March and April of 2021. What explains this sudden spike and then has there been a political fallout so far for Modi's handling of this pandemic? Well, I'll start with the second part of it first. It's a shorter answer. Yes, there has been a political fallout. Uh, the fact that they lost in Bengal, which they uh, stretched out in a brutal eight-phase election campaign, uh, is a response to this reckless policy that the Modi administration has been opting, despite having all the science at its disposal, I might add. Uh, the first part of your question was the suddenness of the spike. And the spike was actually not sudden. The strain was lethal. But everyone knew there was another wave coming. Uh, the government, because it was busy campaigning in Bengal, uh, did not meet the National Scientific Task Force through January, February and March. And even if they did meet, uh, my sources in the task force told me that uh, they came with an agenda and they wanted to use the scientist as a rubber stamp for a political decision, most of which were directed at states uh, which were election bound. So they acted as a springboard for this lethal strain of virus, which the tragedy of India at this point is it's uh, killing our future. It's killing the younger generation the most. And we now have this government, which is so attached to this uh, mythical idea of India, a historic India when it was glorious before the British and before the Mughals. And in that kind of talk, it has just recklessly destroyed India's future. So, but it's also undermined 
the great traditions of science that have been, you know, important to India's standing in the world and India's global influence. Um, so what is the current situation? Is there a way that the, uh, the very notion of public health uh, has been undermined by Modi's government? Narendra Modi is this textbook example of authoritarian rulers' uh, relationship to science and truth. I spent this last year studying the interplay between medicine and conflict, especially in authoritarian regimes like Nazi Germany. And I am really alarmed by the parallels I see between India and 1930s Germany at this point where this uh, nationalistic talk like Hindutva and Hindu science is just so closely related to this idea of glorious history that India allegedly had. The first decision Modi took when he was elected to power in 2014 was to scale up a small department for uh, Ayurvedic therapies and yoga into a ministry of its own. And this was done exactly the same month when the HIV program was slashed and all uh, foreign consultants were fired because they were Western influence and Western medicine was against the idea of Hindu India. And I kind of feel like the handling of uh, Modi's pandemic government will be spoken the same way we speak about uh, South African government during the HIV uh, crisis, where the government kept saying HIV does not cause AIDS, poverty does. And between 1994, when the therapies became available, and 2004, when they finally uh, got into African nations, there was a plunder of populations. And that's what we are seeing happening in India. My worry at this point is the global health crisis that has been set off. Uh, the variant that's spreading in India has been now detected in Geneva. It's been detected in California. There's, there's been cases in uh, uh, Canada. And the same is true for Latin American variants that spread to this continent. The South African variant has spread through the African continent and the vaccines are in a stranglehold. So we are stuck because of the science denialism that originated in India. Hmm. Kapil, I want to take a brief detour from uh, the, the pandemic, which has been preoccupying us, um, to another topic that perhaps, as a result, hasn't been getting as much attention as it has, uh, and that's Kashmir, which you've followed and written about. Um, so since partition, uh, 1947, Kashmir is supposed to have a special constitutional status, but um, what's going on in Kashmir right now? How has Modi exacerbated the conflict there between India and Pakistan? Is Is this as it always has been, um, a real threat in the region that could trigger, in addition to all of these other crises, the erosion of democracy, public health, a straightforward war between India and Pakistan. Right. So you've packed a lot into that question. <laughs> Let me try and break that down. Uh, Kashmir acceded to India in 1948. Kashmir was an independent state, a sovereign state that was invaded by Pakistan in 1948, and the ruler of Kashmir sought India's help, and India made the condition of its intervention Kashmir's accession to India, and that accession was popularly ratified in a free vote. The constitutional guarantees of a special status for Kashmir were difficult to maintain in a country that argued for equality. It was always going to be difficult to say that one state should have a special uh, status, uh, that one state ought to be able to make laws that are beyond the remit of parliament. 
And, but it's important to note that at that moment, the ruler of Kashmir was Hindu, but the population of Kashmir was overwhelmingly Muslim. And, and, the, and the ruler, the ruler's great betonoir, his great foe, was a popular Muslim leader called Sheikh uh, Abdullah, who, who rallied Kashmiris against Pakistan and for India. And it is precisely because of his efforts uh, that Kashmir ended up joining India. The ruler was a thug and a bigot. And Sheikh Abdullah was a socialist who rejected the idea of religious nationalism. And he, the speech he gave uh, in the first uh, democratically elected Constituent Assembly of Kashmir is the most eloquent expression of Indian secularism there is. Uh, not even Nehru could come up with something like that. But Nehru ended up imprisoning Sheikh Abdullah. And it is important to remember that Kashmir became a moral stain long before Modi appeared on the, on the scene. A succession of Indian governments eroded the special status of Kashmir. And in the 1980s, you know, they rigged the elections in that state with a devil-may-care attitude uh, during Rajiv Gandhi's premiership. In this, I genuinely do not think Pakistan is uh, an honest broker. I do not see how Pakistan has any say in this matter. I never want to hear about Pakistan's legitimate role in this. Pakistan uses its arms uh, to blackmail India. Pakistan uses Kashmiris as suicide bombers. Pakistan doesn't care about Kashmiris. It's a very cynical player. And Pakistan is a state founded on the idea uh, that religion should be the determinant of nationality. I abhor that idea when Hindu nationalists propound it. Uh, I don't think why I should accept it when Pakistan uses it. Now, coming to Modi, for the longest time, you could argue for Kashmir's place within the Indian Union because religion was not the basis of Indian nationality. You could belong to any religion, theoretically, and still be fully Indian. But what Kashmiris see today when they look at India is a de facto Hindu state in which Muslims are lynched for their dietary preferences, in which Hindus routinely degrade Muslims and other minorities, in which Kashmiris are persecuted for being Kashmiri Muslims. And you can no longer make the argument that Kashmiris should belong to India because India is a secular state. Kashmir has increasingly resembled a possession of a Hindu imperium. And the cancellation of Kashmir's special status was so despicably done. It was done by lying to Indians. The prime minister began by telling Indians that there was a threat of an imminent terror attack. And he asked all Indians who were visiting Kashmir to return home. And then he locked up all the politicians, even the politicians who have spent decades making the argument for India in Kashmir. He locked them up. Then he, he used the assent of the governor who was appointed by Modi himself as a legitimizing instrument. So a textbook colonial move. Absolutely, absolutely. And it pains me to say that. Uh, Kashmiris have since then have not had a government. They have not had a legitimate government. What they have had is a vice-regal figure from India who sits in Srinagar and tries to run the show. And Kashmiri politicians who have risked their lives arguing for Kashmir's place in India have been delegitimized, have been imprisoned, and they live in fear and India's moral argument in Kashmir is effectively dead under Modi. The only way you can argue for Kashmir's place in India is if India is a secular state. If India becomes a Hindu version of Pakistan, I simply do not see how a Muslim-majority state can be part of that India. 
well, per, you know, perhaps we uh, make too much of one person and sometimes even one party as the source of a country's problems or of the undermining of democracy. When, I mean, when I was a child, I, I was in India for a brief period of time during the emergency. You had many uh, opposition leaders uh, thrown into prison, including members of what was then, the, I guess, the Janata Party, which one of the roots of the BJP. Uh, and, and so it seems like India had already been practiced at that. Uh, so I wonder, uh, Vidya, especially you've you've called attention in your reporting to these broader problems. You've you've, for instance, called the the various pandemic failures the greatest moral failure of India as a whole, and you've laid the blame more broadly on the economic inequality that both parties have fostered and other structural factors that elites within India have certainly benefited from. Can you go deeper on this? Can you explain the extent to which India at large should carry some blame for the excesses of the current regime? So this, I've been thinking about this almost since the pandemic began. The pandemic is a rich man's disease. It came into my country from an airport but almost immediately, people were telling their lower caste, oppressed caste people who were coming into work as cooks and drivers and maids, they were like, oh, you are unhygienic and you're the one bringing uh, quote unquote disease into my house. And what we now see with the pandemic is it's not the mutated virus that is killing us. People are not dying from coronavirus. They are dying from oxygen shortages. And this is not a country where you need the MSF to go in and train medical workers. This is, we, we have doctors around the world. We are a rich community, but the concentrated uh, wealth uh, is just, uh, uh, we've been all completely okay having this uh, medical apartheid that goes on in our government hospitals. Uh, where our uh, drivers and people who work in our households literally go and die because patients are not treated with dignity uh, in Indian government hospitals. Uh, so I kind of don't know how else to look at it. This is not an economic problem. We have aid pouring in, but people are still dying. This is a, I feel like as a collective nation, the cancer that was like spreading in Kashmir that we ignored or like various pockets of like Dantewada or Naxalbadi, all of it has now spread and we cannot ignore these historic injustices anymore. Vidya, how are you able and other journalists able to report on the pandemic and other political stories right now in India? I mean, you've written about having experienced personally a government crackdown on independent media. Tell us about your experience and, and what form has this intimidation or suppression of uh, independent media taken in India? Oh, they they there are very few independent media houses at this point. And my concern is that if these local media organizations do not survive, whatever little information that we have coming out of India will also stop. And uh, some of the best reporting happening out of India right now is local vernacular Hindi-speaking BJP-ruled states, which is where the pandemic is at its worst where journalists are going to the graveyards. Uh, they are, in some cases, burying their own families and continuing to report. I This is not an easy story to report anyway, but I know a lot of my journalist friends just feel like they are stuck. Like, I have lost so many friends in the past month, uh, so many sources, so many doctors. 
But my friends are going out there reporting every day. Some of them have had one shot of vaccination. Most of them, there are no vaccines anymore. And it feels like we are all inevitably going to get infected because now mutated strains are spread everywhere. I'm still processing the loss while I continue to report it. But my biggest concern is uh, local outlets in Kashmir, in Assam, a caravan where I write, uh, wire. There are very few places and we need to make sure they remain alive to just document what's happening. So a couple, uh, to what extent do you see the current state and threat to Indian democracy having roots deeper and older than the current reign of the BJP? Right. Let's consider the emergency. The Congress party, the party that negotiated India's freedom from the British, became a family fief of the Gandhis. Uh, it was gangsterized by Mrs. Gandhi's son, Sanjay. He surgically had 6.2 million Indian men mutilated because he believed that India was overpopulated and the only antidote to India's problems was reducing the population. So he had 6.2 million people sterilized. That is 15 times the number of people sterilized by the Nazis. The Gandhi family have 450 government properties, projects, and schemes named after themselves. You know, the template for the cult of our current overlord was very much supplied by that ghastly dynasty that destroyed the foundations of Indian democracy in the 1970s. And now to come to the furies released by Dr. Manmohan Singh. Singh was prime minister from 2004 to 2014. In 2007, India became a trillion-dollar economy. It was home to eight of the world's richest people in 2010. And yet, during Prime Minister Singh's reign, there were 400 million Indians who lived below the international poverty line, and 46% of all children were malnourished. So faith in the market, this belief that, you know, India will be uplifted, that India is going to be a superpower, didn't begin with Modi. Modi obviously used that sort of thinking to his advantage. He played on that, but he didn't invent it. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetfulness. And we must not forget that Modi didn't fall from the skies. We must not quarantine him from the history that gave rise to him. So given that, uh, how would each of you reflect upon the recent public uprisings against the Modi regime against the BJP, for instance, the, the massive farmers protests we saw just a few months ago. So many people in India seem politically energized. The voter participation has always been high in India. It certainly is uh, something worthy of boasting about in the world's largest democracy. Is democracy in danger in India? What is the hope for democracy in the near future? I, I am hopeful that is the only way to live. I am hopeful India is uh, a young country. It's 75 years into independence. And uh, I tell myself that I should be more patient with uh, India. And the hope that I have now is there is such brilliant uh, resistance that was happening not even uh, two years ago. Uh, we did not see this kind of uh, community level organizing. And then having said that, uh, India is not a democracy at this point. Uh, so I feel at this point, democracy is the aspiration. The young people do not want uh, religion and they don't want temples. They want hospitals and they want schools. And 
that's where our answers are to be found. Kapil? Um, you mentioned India having high levels of participation. That is true. But India's democracy seems to have been reduced to a plebiscitary exercise. It's certainly not a responsive democracy. India is right now in the throes of the worst crisis in its history since partition. And what are the priorities of the prime minister right now? The government has issued a new deadline for the construction of a palatial new mansion for the prime minister. Central Delhi has been dug up to build a new capital. What India lacks, sadly, and this is its greatest tragedy, just when it faces an existential crisis, it does not have an opposition. You experienced in the United States something similar, but on a much smaller scale, I'd say, uh, with Donald Trump. But what you had was an opposition capable of mobilizing Americans. We do not have that. Our only pan-national party exists primarily to provide subsistence to the Gandhi family. And I think it is the duty of everyone who loves India in that party to get rid of that family, to reform it, to retool it, to equip it for the most important elections of our lifetime, which are going to take place in three years' time. But even more important, I think, is for people in the BJP, decent people, and that party does have decent people, it's time for them to topple Modi. Uh, this man is presiding over the complete destruction of India. And I hope that doesn't happen. But this man needs to go. And if Indians in power, if Indians who can make a difference do not stand up to him, then India will, I'm afraid, go down the route of Yugoslavia uh, when Milosevic, a man who is so strikingly similar to Modi, when he came into power. Vidya Krishnan and Kapil Komaredi are both journalists who cover India. Kapil's recent book is called Malevolent Republic, A Short History of the New India, just published in the United States. Vidya is a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Her new book, out later this year, is called Phantom Plague, the untold story of how tuberculosis shaped our history. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. You've got opinions about everything. Who to vote for? What god to worship, if any? The right way to tie a shoelace or make brownies? But where do your views come from? Are they really yours or did you inherit them? And what impact does culture, psychology and even genetics have on what you think? Join me, Turimunti, at On Opinion, the podcast about opinion, to find out. Well, Siva, listening to Manu, to Vidya, to Kapil, I'm I'm worried. I mean, we talk about India as the world's largest democracy, but right now they don't think it's much of a democracy at all, and they think it's facing its worst crisis since independence 75 years ago. I'll just throw this into the mix. 75 years after the United States received its independence, it was 10 years away from the U.S. Civil War. So India is a young country, and it's likely to go through periods of growth and crisis, and it certainly is in one right now. It's a young country in an old civilization. It's been through about every form of government one could imagine in its history. Uh, it wasn't really even an it until the British Empire unified it as an it. 
And now we have in India a strongman leader in the classic sense. And I think it's important to keep some things in context here. We're talking about a country of 1.3 billion people, the second largest country in the world, the second largest country that has ever existed. <laughs> We're talking about a country of tremendous diversity, tremendous geographical breadth. We're talking about a nuclear power. We're talking about an economic power. We're also talking about one of the world's poorest countries, a country with environmental degradation and economic inequality that is just mind-boggling. And we're talking about a country that has the second most Muslim citizens of any country in the world and yet is led by a Hindu nationalist government intent on making all of those millions of Muslims feel like second-class citizens or no citizens at all. So the number of challenges facing India is just unbelievable. And yet, and yet, there are people throughout India who will not give up on the democratic project. You know, they're willing to take risks, they're willing to face jail, torture, threats, harassment. India breaks my heart all the time. That's all for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Coming up next week in our season finale, it's going to be all about what the heck is going on in the United States with the Republican Party. Disfranchising millions of people. That's how they see maintaining power. And we're watching it play out all over the country. And it is frightening. In the meantime, please stay in touch with us. Tag us on Twitter. We are at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Or you can go to dendanger.org for background readings and show notes and links to all of our past episodes. And while you're there, please leave us a comment. Let us know what people, places, and problems you think we should explore in our next season. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time. Thank you.